Uh, James chapter 5, we're going to look at not what your outline says, uh, but rather verses 13 through 16. And to begin with, let me tell you a story that some of you are going to remember. In 1983, there were two truck bombs that struck the U.S. Marine barracks, killing over 240 servicemen and wounding many others. And many of us can still recall the terrible scenes as the dazed survivors worked to dig out their trapped brothers from beneath that rubble. And a few days after that tragedy, one of the commanders, Paul Kelly, visited some of the wounded survivors in Frankfurt, Germany, in a hospital there, and among them was a corporal by the name of Jeffrey Lee Nashton, who was severely wounded in the incident. In fact, he had so many tubes going in and out of his body that one witness said he looked more like a machine than a man, yet he survived. And I want to tell you an incident that occurred. As Kelly neared him, Nashton, who struggled to move and was racked with pain, motioned for a piece of paper and a pen. And he wrote a brief note and he passed it back to the commander. And on that slip of paper were two words. You know what they were? Semper Fi, which means always or forever faithful. It's a Latin motto of the Marines. Friends, throughout this series in James, I have pointed out relentlessly, as much as I could, that James is like a string of pearls that contains many teachings, but ties all of them together in a single theme. Here's that theme, and here's what you heard in that illustration. The theme is a faith that remains, a faith that lives, an undivided faith. Now, please listen. You've got to understand this. If you want to know what James is writing about, he's writing that there would be no division between the way that we believe and the way that we live. Friends, we see it everywhere. We even have a name for it. It's called hypocrisy. And James is writing that our double-minded ways that we want to follow after God, yet we find ourselves so often following after the world, would grow and merge into a single-minded faith that our deep, Knowledge of God would translate into broad and righteous living. And what brings this maturity, now listen, what brings this maturity is our endurance and our perseverance when we encounter trials, difficult times, and difficult people. Friends, are you going through times of trouble? Are you going through trials? James has something to say to you. And he has something to say to me. He says, pray. Look at what it says in verse 13. And we're going to see there's three things out of this passage. In a healthy church, Christians pray. Here's verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. In a healthy church, Christians Pray. What's trouble mean? When I hear the word trouble, even though I'm 42 years old, I still remember the time that I left my bicycle at the bottom of the driveway in our home and my mom seeing it out the front window and says to me, 
your father's going to be home and you're going to be in trouble because you won't be able to get up the driveway. That's not what the word trouble means. Although I'm scarred, what the word trouble means is to undergo hardships. Are you going through difficulty? James says, is any one of you going through hardships, trials, difficulties? These are weary, suffering believers that James is ministering to. He's a pastor. And the people in his churches, they're persecuted. They're abused. They've been treated horribly, friends, listen, by Gentiles, certainly, but by even their own Jewish brethren. And James has taught that we are to endure these difficulties, endure this, endure this trouble, not, listen, not with a stoic or impassive demeanor. In other words, you're not supposed to go through trials with the notion and the terrible advice of just remember God loves you. Come on, buck up. Don't cry. That's not what James is saying. And neither is he exhorting us to pray that God would hurry up and remove the trial as much as what James really is saying. He's urging us to endure and pray for the strength to endure the trial that you're in. God will remove the trouble from us when he decides. But until he decides, James says, remain always faithful to him. Persevere, fight, struggle, heroically endure, and pray for strength. Pour out your heart to God like our own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did just hours before his crucifixion. James goes on, he says, he asks, is anyone happy? Now, doesn't that seem strange? In the middle of this book of 54 Greek imperatives, whiplashes, commands to get moving, opening and closing with trials and hardships and persecution and perseverance, James has the audacity to say, is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. But you know what happy means? Happy means cheerful despite the circumstances. So James is saying, is anyone cheerful despite all of the trouble that's going on in your lives? If you are, then let him sing songs of praise. If you're cheerful, praise God. Friends, listen, because it's God who is enabling you to endure the trial and the trouble that you're in to his praise and to his honor. Amen? And like many of the Psalms, don't we hover between cheerfulness in misery, look at Psalm 73 on the screen with me. This is a Psalm of Asaph. Notice how he starts. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, look at his focus. Who's he focusing on? As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on, surely in vain, listen to the, the pathos, listen to the passion, surely in vain I have kept my, my heart pure, in vain have I washed my hands in innocence, but now, listen, he's going to change 
as he goes on in the psalm, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And look how he closes. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So here's the psalm of Asaph writing a song for Israel that begins with misery because of all the trouble going on in his life. But as it changes and as it transitions, as he keeps his eyes on God or brings his eyes back to God, he ends in cheerful praise. Friends, we hover between the two of these. And at times of trouble, James tells us to look to God for our strength and endurance because in healthy churches, Christians pray. But he goes on and he says, uh, point number two, in a healthy church, elders pray. Look at verse 14 with me. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him. Friends, this is one of the most difficult passages in James, and it's one of the most difficult in the entire Bible. You want to know why pastors often do not preach expositorily? Expository preaching is verse by verse by verse in a passage because you come to verses like these and you can't skip over them. As much as I wanted to, you have to go through them. But let me teach you, and listen, whenever, bar no exception, you come to a difficult passage in Scripture, the very first step you take to inter interpret Scripture correctly is you look at the context in which it's placed. Context, as always, is incredibly important. What's the context? Listen as I bring you up to speed. James is writing to persecuted and scattered Jewish believers. Now listen, trials within the church, trials without, were a constant vice, a constant pressure on these believers. There was grumbling. If you remember this series, there's been grumbling, there's been judging, there's been resentment, there's been quarreling, there's been division, there's been fighting, there's been slandering, there's been favoritism, there's been economic struggles, and we come all the way to chapter 5, and we see that it reaches a crescendo as James instructs them to be patient with difficult people and in difficult circumstances. Why? Because these Jewish believers were by and large agriculturalists, which mean they own fields and they farm. And what was happening was with 40% of your income being taken out for both Roman and Jewish taxes, they didn't leave even enough left to pay for their own debts of buying their fields. So because they couldn't pay for their fields, all of these wealthy landowners would come in and they would gobble up large tracts of land and then force the ones who previously owned the fields to become their day laborers farming the fields that used to belong to them but now belong to somebody else and even though barns were filled even though all of this money was flowing they kept telling these day laborers whom you pay daily at the end of your day i don't have money today come back tomorrow and they lived day by day so no money today meant no food for your family tomorrow and when you can't pay your debts because you're not getting paid you went to prison and guess what the way they did prison was that the only way you ate was if your family brought you food. And if your family can't have any money because you can't work to pay for food, you die and starve. This is what's happening to these Jewish believers. All of this persecution, all of this trouble, all of this difficulty. And James says, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church. 
Helen Van Summeren right now, Pastor Tim's wife, is in China. She's over there with Al and Peggy Horton, who have been over there now four times to deliver Bibles to the underground Chinese church. And they told us of a story this past Wednesday of a Chinese pastor of one of their churches who was caught with thousands of pamphlets and Bibles in his home. And he was sent to prison, friends, where he is tortured, where he was tortured daily. We can't connect to that in this country. But over there, he was tortured daily. So badly that though now he is released, and though Peggy and Al have ministered to him, he cannot even look them in the eyes. He will not speak of Christ. His faith is desolated. He's been defeated. We prayed for him. We pray for other pastors that are being punished and severely persecuted. Remember, James wrote this book to strengthen and mature faith. Now, all I'm doing is giving you context. I'm going to bring it home in a moment. So that deep knowledge of God lives out in broad, righteous living. That's faith. That's why he wrote this book. And he began his book in chapter 1 talking about the Jewish suffering that these scattered believers were going through. And he stayed with this theme, and he's coming back to this theme in droves in this final chapter so that they would be patient and persevere through difficulty. Now that I've told you the context, look at it again. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Friends, listen. I am well aware, believe me, well aware of the usual and normal way that we have interpreted this passage, but I have been forced to study it, and I want to present to you what I believe is the correct way of understanding it. The word sick, is any one of you sick, comes from a Greek word which can mean a wide range of meanings. Here they are. It means to be weak, feeble, without strength, powerless, or physically ill or sick. That's what this word means. Now listen to this. It's translated physically sick 18 times, in the almost all of those being in the Gospels to mean physically sick. It translated 18 times this word of physical illness. It's translated weak and powerless 14 times, now listen, almost all of them in Acts and the epistles that follow the Gospels. Let me give you some examples. 1 Corinthians 8. So this weak brother, there's that word, for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Or Romans 14, except him whose faith is weak, powerless, feeble, without passing judgment on disputable matters. You know, I've worked with two senior pastors who have gone through tremendous hardship in their ministry. And each one of them came to a place where they shut down for a period of time and became incapacitated, could hardly even make it to the office, much less do anything ministry. So James asks, with tender pastoral compassion, 
Is any one of you struggling with a faith, listen, with a faith that is running on fumes? If so, call the elders of the church. By the way, when a, church, when a Jew was sick, he went first to the rabbi before he went to the doctor's. And the rabbi would anoint him with oil, which Galen, the Greek doctor, called the best of all medicines. The rabbi would then begin to pray over him. You see, the early church was incredibly devoted to the weak, powerless, physically sick. So James is well within biblical custom to direct the sick to the elders of the church. He says the church ought to care very much for those who are sick physically, as well as those whose faith is being tested to the point of faltering. The Greek tense of call the elders, friends, is one of urgency. This is urgently call the elders. He doesn't say one elder. He doesn't say two. He says the elders as a group, the recognized spiritual leaders of the, of the church. You see, there's the picture is of a wounded, exhausted person who's, who's asking the elders to come and intercede for them so that God would renew their strength. Friends, listen, this isn't a passage that contrary to so much wrong teaching in our country, that can support an individual faith healer. Faith healers use this passage. It has nothing to do with that. Neither does it support the Catholic doctrine of extreme unction. You know what that is, don't you? It's where a priest comes over, anoints you with oil, and prays over you so that any remaining sin would be purged just before you die. See, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says the leaders of the church were to warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So what's an elder to do? There's three important functions. Number one, they pray over the sick person. The elders of the church, Acts 6.4, are to give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Friends, listen, the elders of Cornerstone need to be men of prayer. If something happens in our church, our voluntary reaction by discipline needs to be prayer. And those whose ships of faith are heading precariously to the reefs need to be strengthened by the power of God through the church's leaders' prayers. Now, some of you are thinking, perhaps, wow, where is he coming up with this stuff? Let me tell you something about ancient letter writing. When a person brought their letter to a close, they customarily never introduced a new teaching. So James, is already, all, all he's doing is he's reinforcing what these people know they ought to be doing. He's, all, he's just reinforcing a custom of the church. If anyone is sick, which I'm telling you means feeble or powerless in your faith, then call the elders to pray. What else do they do? They anoint the sick person with oil. Why? Because oil often symbolized... Joy and gladness, here it is, the spirit of the sovereign Lord, Isaiah 61, is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. These aren't financially poor. These are poor people who are powerless and weak. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Skip down. 
the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his glory. You see, James has been most concerned with the joy of these scattered, persecuted believers. Remember, flip back in your, in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 2. Remember what he writes? Do you remember it? Consider it pure what? Joy. My brother, it's how he starts the letter. So consider it joyful, my brothers, when you're enduring, when you're going through these trials because it's strengthening your faith, making you single-minded rather than double-minded. So they anoint the sick person with oil to bring them to the point of remembering their joy and gladness. But see, what else do they do? The oil of joy, it's applied to the feeble, powerless sufferer. How? In the name of the Lord. See, anointing in the name of the Lord clearly points away from elders. It points away from, listen, it points away from the oil. Now listen, it even points away from the sick person and to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the great physician, who is the balm of Gilead, who is the son of God, who alone can restore life and lift up the feeble. It's why we anoint in the name of the Lord. I don't want credit. If the elders are coming to pray for you, we don't want glory. We don't want you to put your faith in us. We don't want you to think our prayers are so powerful that by our own prayers power, we can heal your feeble-hearted faith. It is Christ that heals. It is Christ that lifts up and restores. So we come in the name of the Lord. And what do we find? Isaiah 42, a bruised reed, he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. His alone is the power at work. He alone receives glory and honor. And James says in the prayer, offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Now listen, I want to tell you something. How you interpret this passage, and let me tell I want to be honest with you. There are godly men and women that have come at this passage and come out of it with different interpretations. But the entire passage hinges on two uses of the word sick. What's it mean? I've told you one of them. Look in verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Here's that word again. But friends, listen, it's a different word in Greek. Whereas the first word sick meant powerless and feeble. And I pointed it toward our faith that suffering leeches our faith and our confidence in God out of us if it's protracted and long. Here we see a different Greek word, which means to grow weary or to be discouraged, listen, to the point of fainting. So James is saying in the prayer offered in faith will make the weary person who is ready to spiritually give it up well. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament. And the other time is here in Hebrews 12. It says, consider him who endured such opposition. Here's that context of trouble from sinful men. This is Jesus so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And what's he say? He says in the prayer offered in faith will make the weary hearted person. Well, the Lord will raise him up. What's that word? Well, mean it means to be restored to spiritual wholeness. You see, friends, listen. The prayers of the elders, if they are called, they will come. 
and they will pray and their prayers will deliver weak, defeated, suffering, losing hope Christians from their weakness and restore them to spiritual wholeness. This is what Isaiah 40 is talking about. We sang about it. Do you not know? This is what God does. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Look at what it says. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not, not be faint. Friends, listen. James just got done telling us that God is full of compassion and mercy. He knows that we struggle in trials. He knows that we could come to the point where we want to give up. There are people in our church now who are there. I've talked to them. He knows that we are feeble and powerless. And he knows that he's given the church elders. And the church elders are to be men of faith and men of prayer. And if you ask them to come to you, and ask them to pray for you, and they anoint you with oil that reminds you of your joy and gladness in Christ, they will pray for you, and the Bible says your spirit and your faith will be restored. I believe that. But James says something else in addition. 5.15, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Friends, sometimes the sickness of faith is due to sin. The tense, the Greek tense of has sinned, please write this down. It means continuous, repeated, uninterrupted sinning. It doesn't mean I make, that I, that I, um, that I sinned yesterday. It means that I'm in a protracted period of uninterrupted, unconfessed sin. And I've seen personally how ongoing bitterness and how unforgiveness can leach the love out of a marriage. I've seen anger anger that is shoved inside and swallowed. I've seen it drive people to depression, drive people to the brink of suicide. I've seen people spiritually collapse because of private, hidden sin that they will not confess. This sin can lead to serious emotional, spiritual, and sometimes physical symptoms. Hear from David, Psalm 32, after his sin with Bathsheba, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones, listen to the physical symptoms, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But remember, Jesus, full of compassion and mercy, he will cleanse, he will forgive when we confess and we repent. And David did this in Psalm 51. And look at what he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Here it is, the oil of joy. Let my let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Friends, listen, when the elders are called to visit, it is usually because somebody has a serious and debilitating illness. But friends, we will always go pray for them. We will always come because it's great to pray. And it's wonderful when the elders care for the sheep that are broken and they will pray for their healing. 
But as you're seeing in this text, this practice is for those who are weakened in their faith to the point of giving up and forsaking God. So what do we do when we visit? Here's what we do when we visit. We go and we sit with the weak and struggling believer and we let that person talk. We let that person share his heart with us. And we ask sensitively if there is any repeated habit of sin in their lives that needs to be confessed. And if so, we guide them into confession and repentance. And if there's not a source of sin, we remind them of our Lord's promises to restore. We remind him that he promises to bind up and to not break or snuff out the weary. And then we take olive oil, the symbol of joy and gladness. We anoint them with it because it's the joy that the Spirit of God gives. It marks and points to Christ alone. And we anoint and we begin to pray for that person. Friends, let me ask, are you on a spiritual sickbed? It's your faith smoldering. Call the elders. Call the elders and let us pray for your restoration. See, James is guiding us into a healthy church. You want to be a healthy church? I so want to be a healthy church. And a healthy church is made up of people that know God's word and live it out in righteous living. And we know now that James is saying, Christians, if you want to be a healthy church, pray. And Christians, if you want to be a healthy church, then ask the elders to come and pray for you if your faith is faltering. But he says one more thing in verse 16. In a healthy church, we pray for each other. Friends, we're all prone to severe discouragement. We are all susceptible, all of us, to faltering faith. But there's a preventive help for this. But it, listen, it's not here And it's not in most churches that I've been in. James tells us what it is. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Listen, let's, let's dig into this for a moment. Here's what it means. The Greek tense to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another. Listen, it means repeated, continuous, habitual practice. So James is saying, therefore, repeatedly, habitually confess your sins. If you're caught in a sin, Your hope is to tell your brother and sister about it and for your brother and sister to repeatedly and habitually pray for you. There's somebody in our church right now that came to me a couple weeks ago and confessed sin. So I've been calling him every few days and asking him, how are you doing? Did you slip up again? Come on, take your faith seriously. Because if you don't take your faith seriously, you give sin a root in your heart, it will lead to spiritual sickness. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, 
so that your lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. We are a priesthood of all believers. I pray for you. You pray for me. We pray for one another. We confess habitually to one another. Why? So that the text says we may be healed means spiritual restoration. Listen, it doesn't have to get to the point where you're on your spiritual deathbed. It doesn't have to get to the point where your faith is ready to snuff out because you're in protracted, elongated suffering. It could get to the point where you go to one another, you confess your sins to one another, and they pray for you habitually, continually, and it will heal you. It will restore your faith. Why? Because James says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Praying for one another, it's powerful and it's effective. You don't need to wait for the elders. You don't need to wait till you get to the point where you need to see the elders. Friends, it's not just the elders who are able to pray for mighty acts of God on behalf of others. We really believe we are the priesthood of all believers. You know what that means? It means simply this. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have the power through prayer to take the hand of God and combine it with the hand of the sufferer. You mediate like the priests of old through prayer, bringing God's grace and God's blessing and God's favor and God's power to those who are in need. That's what prayer is. So let's confess to each other and pray for each other. And if we do, we won't get to the point where our faith threatens to run on rocks. Friends, let me close with this. Does God heal the physically sick? The answer is absolutely when he so wills. I've seen it. I've seen him not heal. I've seen him not heal when the elders have gone and anointed oil and prayed. But in this passage, it seems clear that what is in James's mind is the restoration of faltering faith, weak, powerless faith that is bringing you to the point of spiritual collapse. And they've been struck ill through severe suffering. That's the context. And God has given us, he's given the church a mighty weapon against struggling faith. It's called prayer. And we need to ask for prayer for ourselves. When we are in difficulty, God, give me endurance to make it through this trial. Don't let me pray for the trial to be gone. Let me pray that you would do a work in my heart, bring my faith into maturity while I heroically endure this trial. And we need to ask the elders to come pray for us when we are struggling and we get to the point of collapse. And where sin is at the root, we confess it and God will raise us up. But friends, listen, we need to learn to live not in the dungeon, listen, not in the dungeon of privatistic righteousness. You know what that means is that you've got a sin that you hate and you're appalled at and you don't tell anybody about it. I'll get through it. I'll defeat it. I'm going to pray and pray and God's going to bring me out of it. Friends, you're going to die in that dungeon because it's not the way that God has given you for freedom. You want freedom, he says, confess habitually when you sin repeatedly over and over. Confess your sins to one another. And when people confess, pray repeatedly and habitually for God's restoration in their lives. We're going to see this point in the last sermon from James. The same exact point that we have to go to war on behalf of one another. And when we do, powerful 
and effective and righteous things can happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need help even digesting this sermon. Lord, I've been looking at it all week. Some of my brothers and sisters are hearing this for the first time. Lord, I pray that they would go back to your word and that they would see if it is true. But Lord, I know, I am confident, I have experienced that when we try to live Lone Ranger lives, struggling with sin, but we hide it in a shroud of privateness, we will not tell people about it. We're too ashamed about it, Lord. We remain in that sin because you've given us the weapons to defeat it. And that weapon is the Spirit of God working through the prayers of the saints of God. Lord, let us confess and let us reveal, let us be brave, and Lord, let us pray for one another. With your heads bowed, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to get out of your seat. But with everybody's eyes closed, would you honor that? This is a particularly sensitive question. Are you here this morning caught up in a sin that you cannot defeat? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to raise your hand with everybody's eyes closed. You're not going to be alone. I talk to people over and over about this. Would you be honest? At least this level of honesty, raise your hand. Raise it high. Hands going up all over. Who else is going to be honest? Just raise your hand. Maybe that's gossip. Maybe that's judgmentalism, resentment, unforgiveness. Maybe it's drugs, pornography. What is it? You raise your hand and be honest. It don't hide. A lot of hands up. Any more hands? Be honest. I'm going to give you a few more seconds. I'm just asking for honesty. You're not going to come out of your pews. I'm not going to make you do anything else. I want to pray for you. You can put your hands down. Lord, I pray for those who raise their hands. Lord, I have experienced this. It is a dungeon. And Lord, we try desperately to break free. We pray. We read the Bible. We do what we think we're supposed to do. We avoid the one thing you tell us to do. And that is to confess our sins to one another. Lord, not because any person has the power to absolve sins, but because every person that's in Christ has a power to mediate and to bring a friend and a relative to you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, if we confess our sins, your Bible says that you are faithful and just, and as our high priest, you will cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that we would do that. Be with those who raise their hands. Lord, let them find someone in Christ who will pray continuously for them to be honest and to be restored. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.